The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Well, folks, it's the Paul Leslie Hour. I just finished that show with the two guys and the moderator and uh, the future of the free world. The debates, that's it. Quite a show, huh? Well, I hope that this is quite a show for you all. I have a phenomenal talent. She's going to be interviewed. Heidi Newfield, superb singer, harmonica player, songwriter, recording artist. A lot of you are familiar with Heidi Newfield through Trick Pony. That is how I first became familiar with her. I was playing Trick Pony on my show on Radio Margaritaville back in the day. This would be 16, 17 years ago. I know Heidi Newfield has a lot of fans, rightfully so. I just ask two things. One, tell a fan of Heidi Newfield or a music fan in general about this interview. The other thing is, if you have a dollar or two or five or whatever, just go to thepaullesley.com. There's a little button that says support the show. Believe me when I tell you, every bit helps. What do you think of the new theme song? This was performed by John Primerano, a great pianist, songwriter, and recording artist up in Philadelphia. But this is him playing the song Karina Karina, the old blues song. Pretty appropriate considering Heidi Newfield's album, which we're going to get into in just a moment. I won't keep you waiting. Let's get into the show. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, we have with us a sensational artist. Heidi Newfield has recently released The Barfly Sessions, Volume 1. It's not like anything I've heard. For those who like blues music, you should get familiar with this one. The songs are great. Heidi's voice is powerful. Heidi co-wrote 12 of the 14 songs, and she co-produced with the legendary Jim Moose Brown, who some of you might remember as a past guest of ours. It's an honor to finally speak with the talented vocalist, guitarist, harmonica player, entertainer, and recording artist, ladies and gentlemen, the inimitable Heidi Newfield. Thank you so much for being here. Wow, Paul, thank you for the fabulous introduction. It's good to be here. It's an honor. So how are you feeling on this this day in October? Well, you know, I... I um I have to say that I, I really do wish I could click my heels and just clone this gorgeous, crisp October weather and have it be like this about six months out of the year. It just couldn't be prettier right now in Nashville and uh, not too ho- not too hot, not too cold. I uh, just uh, spent the morning and uh, early part of the afternoon writing a, a new song with a uh, friend of mine who writes a lot for movies and sync stuff. And uh, we are just having a great time writing a lot of music together. And so, you know, it's been a really productive day. Sounds good. So I was just mentioning this album, The Barfly Sessions, and this is volume one. You must have had an original idea in mind when this project started. What started The (laughs) Barfly Sessions? Well, it was original, all right. <laughs> I obviously, you know, this this is by far one of the most diverse records I've ever heard, much less certainly tried to make. 
And, uh, you know, I've always kind of gone into making a record, whether, whether it be in the early days with Trick Pony or on my own after that. With, as a songwriter, you know, you go, you, you kind of have a process. You, you know, you really write hard for a record and, and knowing that you're going to make one and, and you kind of have sort of a, a general idea in mind. This one came about in an entirely fresh new way, as far as I'm concerned. I decided that because music is where it is, as far as so many genres have been, the boundaries have been blurred. You know, country is everything, you know, it's it's everything. It's pop, it's rock, it's rap, it's hip hop, it's traditional a little bit, it's bluesy, it's soulful, it's all over the map. And you know, really there are, it's it's just so varied out there. And so that got me to thinking, you know, I've always, I've always been a blues harmonica player. I've always sung the blues as, as much and and with as much love and care as I, and, and appreciation as I, as I feel about country music. And uh, I wanted to make a record that was kind of indicative or sort of felt like what I always heard about, you know, 60s and 70s radio, which was very, um, which is a mix. You might hear Johnny Cash and then you turn around and you'd hear the Eagles. Um, then you turn around and you'd hear Amy Lou Harris. And then you turn around and you'd hear, you know, like, you know, Aerosmith singing, you know, Sweet Emotion or something. It's just, it was really kind of a mix of great music or and so I decided that I wanted to pull from my influences and my favorite sort of styles and, and my strengths, that the types of music that I, and types of songs that I really love to sing and kind of broaden my horizons and put them all on one big record. And so um, that led to me going back into my catalog and finding um, about four, I think there's about four, maybe five songs that I had written all the way, dating all the way back to my first solo record, Out of Trick Pony. So some of those songs were written in 2008 through 2012, 13. And I had a few of those that I just kind of knew were special and that I didn't really want to pitch to anybody else. I I just wanted to kind of keep them from, you know, to myself, (laughs) hoping that somewhere down the road I would, they'd fit a, 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 spe- a specific project. And I went back and found, you know, some of those songs and pulled them out. And then I went to work writing and just really wrote like crazy. A lot of co-writing with some of my favorite people. And, you know, some things started out as solo writes songs that I was writing on my own. And then I, I would kind of go, gosh, you know, who would be great on? It would be so fun to write this with. Leslie Satcher or with Sharon Vaughn or, you know, I should call Jim Moose Brown, my, who ended up co-producing this record with me. And so it's a varied group of, of co-writers that are, you know, I wrote a thing with Chris Stapleton and Trent Wellman on this record. And, and so I just took those, I kind of cherry picked those songs that I thought were very special and sort of were unique and fit Somehow, I wasn't sure how it was all going to kind of come together, but I picked about 20 songs out of all of the tunes that I had written and co-written and, and a few of them being the, the ones that, 
I mentioned earlier that I, I had had in my catalog. And I then went to a, a pitch meeting or two, which is where you go in and a, a group of song pluggers will from different publishing companies will pitch you songs, outside songs. And I picked two outside songs that couldn't be more different from one another. One was very sparse and beautiful and haunting and lonesome called Whitley's Tombstone, which is extremely country, as you can imagine from the title. <laughs> and the other is was a song that was written a long time ago, and I didn't know who all had covered it when I picked it, which I'm grateful for because I, <laughs> Etta James had, had done a, a, um, a version of this before she she passed away, and I'm glad I didn't know that because that would have been a bit more daunting, but hmm. it was called The Blues Is My Business, and I was introduced to one of the co-writers of that song, Kevin Bowe. And that led to me writing the next, the very next day, Love Blind, which came, which was kind of came right before we recorded. So it's interesting how, like, just how the connect connections, sort of the common threads throughout, as far as writers and co-writers. So I had this group of songs, and Moose and I sat down. Uh, Jim Moose Brown and I sat down after uh, talking about the the you know, the the depth and the, you know, the idea behind this record being a big record that we just kind of picked a band that was like-minded that could twang with the best of them because there was going to be some really country honky-tonk Texas Roadhouse kind of feels. And then, then there was going to be some really, you know, raw soul blues and there was going to be an, an almost rock kind of flavored stuff and there was going to be some singer songwriter kind of almost folk or some more delicate and fragile pieces and so we needed to find a band that fit that you know that that um was really broad-minded and able had a big bag of tricks so to speak and we did and we went through and it was so fun picking the players and you know Michael Rhodes played the electric bass and and David Rowe, Dave Rowe played all the upright parts who played with Johnny Cash and Dwight Yoakam and many others. And Michael Rhodes has been <laughs> with everybody from Jeff Beck to Emmylou Harris to you name it. So these are all people who are really broad minded when it came, comes to their music and they like to listen to a lot of different music like I do. And we went in and kind of sort of denned up together and we kind of, everybody just sort of became my band for about four or five days. And we made this record and and sort of began to build it. And then there were a couple of things that just screamed out duet and a couple of things that screamed out, you know, Jim Lauderdale on this Bakersfield thing called I Could Fall For You. I, I was like, Jim's steeped in that kind of music and he would be so great on that. So I called him and, and he came in and I called Kenny Vaughn, who is with the Fabulous Superlatives and before that has been with some pretty famous bands all the way through. He's an, a stellar, stellar guitar player and has been with Marty Stewart for years now. And he came in and played some D-Bender twang Telecaster on that. I called Delbert McClinton and I said, hey, I got this blues tune. I sent it to him. 
and he loved it. And uh, he came in and joined me on that. I called my buddy Randy Hauser and said, I've got this song called Whitley's Tombstone, and it seems to cry out as a duet. And he immediately laughed and he said, Heidi, I know that song. I, I, I'm just almost going to cut it on my last record. <laughs> so there was, you know, again, uh, it was just a really fun, collaborative group of people and putting the pieces of the puzzle together. But the whole idea really in, in a nutshell, Paul, was that we, I just wanted to make a record that when you turn it on from the, from the start, it kind of, it's sort of the way it turned out. It sort of slaps you in the face and makes you, you know, pulls you in with this kind of raucous, you know, rock kind of thing. And then it rolls into, you know, it rolls into a soulful kind of almost Eddie Jamesy kind of thing. And then it rolls into, you know, a little bit of a rockabilly country flavored thing, which I'm known for. And, and it goes on from there. And it somehow, even with all the diversity, has this, it, it flows. And it, it, even though it's so unique and, and big and varied, it's, it's really fun. You want to listen to it from start to finish because you have n- absolutely no idea what's going to come next. And everything is so different from the other. And yet somehow there's this common thread, which is, of course, there's a lot of harmonica and, and of course, my singing. And I really get to kind of let my hair down on this record and get to sing, you know, and and really kind of everything from belting things out to some really breathy stuff and way up my falsetto and, and just really getting to play with my voice, which is a lot of fun. So that's that's basically the... The gist behind it is is no rules, like let's just go make a cool record. Well, congratulations on this record. And as you've mentioned here, you have songs that you wrote with some of the greatest songwriters alive. And as you also mentioned, a great producer, Jim Moose Brown. The very first time I ever went to Nashville, I met Jim Moose Brown the very first day. And I'm hoping... Oh, wow. Yeah. Pretty, pretty lucky of me. But how did you come to meet this guy who I should tell all the listeners? He's an incredible musician, a great producer. He's produced by, as, as you've been hearing, our guest Heidi Newfield, but also Lucas Nelson. He wrote the song. It's five o'clock somewhere. One of the most successful songs of the last decade. <laughs> how did you meet Moosey Baby? <laughs> He's, you know, one other thing that we should point out about Jim Moose Brown, and we'll just call him Moose from here forward because that's a lot, a lot of names to, uh, <laughs> that's a lot, of, a lot of breath there. He is, he's also the band leader for Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. He's been with Bob for about sixteen years now, maybe that's right, seventeen years. And people largely know Moose in Nashville and the Muscle, Muscle Shoals area, and all throughout as a phenomenal, what we would call a string, like he's the top of the pile, if you will, the top of the, of the top level B3 Hammond and piano player. He's a really phenomenal piano player, but he also, people don't realize he's a very, you know, he's really, really quite talented on multiple instruments and he's a great guitar player can sit down and, and, and do some cool stuff with drums. He's, he can pick up a bass. He's really multi-talented. And, and he even sings, you know, some harmonies as well. So we had some fun with that. But so he, you know, he was actually on tour with Bob Seeger doing a, a farewell tour 
for the, maybe the last six months of me working on this record. So it was wonderful collaborating with him because he trusted me and knew that I knew what I was doing and we'd, and I'll tell you how we met, but you know, and I, I could, I had some sessions where I had, you know, Delbert McClinton coming in and he knew that I was taking care of business and that he didn't have to be there. He, I, you know, I, I chose Vance Powell as my mixing engineer and Moose had never worked with, with Vance. And so I think that was a new relationship for him and he was really impressed. And I had Pete Lyman at Infrasonic Sound master this record who, you know, both guys are just everything from the rack on tours and to Chris Stapleton to they're just really wide open as far as, you know, rock punk country. They're all over the map as far as they're, They've got really big ears. Let's put it that way. So Moose is one of those guys that that is just a fabulous, easy, fun-loving, you know, big-hearted guy that's got all this talent. And I've known him, I think, gosh, since even before I started with Trick Pony, I think I just known him from being uh, singing demos around Nashville before I joined the band, or right around the time I joined the band which was in the mid nineties. And then we, we got signed in 2000 to Warner brothers. And, you know, I had always been a writer. So of course what you do is you, you know, I would, I would write tons of songs and then I would cherry pick those and I would do what we'd call like maybe a double session or, you know, sometimes an all day thing, like a double session with what we call a special, you know, a couple songs extra added on there so I would wait till I had enough songs to record and Moose would come in and be, and he played B3 and Hammond and piano on so many of, of these demos that I had, I was producing at that, at that time. And you're producing these demos so that you can both pitch them to other artists and also keep them in your catalog for things like what we're talking about here. And so that you have a great representation of the song and and it's it's forever you know uh, you know on digital and or tape you know forever down so that's how i met moose was doing demos in town and and then of course you know you meet each other at different benefits for for uh, you know nashville is very much a community of musicians and and friends and and everyone from the industry we kind of pull for each other and when somebody's in need somebody's you know, down on their luck or they've had a car accident or they've, you know, been diagnosed with cancer or things like that. We kind of pull together and Moose and I have been a part of a lot of benefits and and those types of things to help others. So we, you know, we've known each other for a long time and I've considered him a friend probably first before anything else. And then, you know, and then a, and a coworker. And um, so it's just a natural fit because he's got such a big, aptitude for all kinds of music and when you talk about country music specifically i i think moose and i are both kind of um even though i'm talking about rock and i'm talking about all these other sort of genres we both are really true almost what i'd consider purists when it comes to country music i mean there's there's a deep appreciation for the instrumentation for the authenticity for the way a song goes down and neither of us we we both were very, like I said, we're kind of like-minded in the way we like to cut, which is 
we don't really, I don't really care for records. I, I don't lean towards records that sound polished and perfect and what we like to call kind of canned. Hmm. So it sounds like the producer has asked the singer to sing it 102 times. And it sounds like the producer has moved this guitar part over here to this. And it sounds like everything is so perfectly in sync. We are kind of the opposite. We kind of like the record to feel when the listener listens to it. I want it to feel like you're literally in the room with us and it's the you're on the cutting room floor with us. And you're hearing this and there's because because I think even though people are hearing it over the radio or they're hearing it on a podcast or on their phone or however they get their music, there's still an exchange of energy there. And if a record is canned or polished up and made to be so perfect, then that's there's not really it loses a lot of that natural energy that you get from like a live concert for that matter. So we both are big fans of you know, go red and let the band do what the band's going to do. And let's see what happens. You know, if we don't like it, we can always cut, you know, recut it. We've got nothing but time. So that's kind of our attitude about, about cutting records. And and we have that in common. Had he been of a different, you know, kind of mindset. And he was one of those guys who I, you know, there's lots of great producers that are, big on, you know, really, really going over everything with such a fine tooth comb that it sounds so impeccable and so perfect. There, There's room for that, too. It just so happened that this record and the type of music we were cutting needed to have more of a raw sort of in-your-face cutting room floor kind of energy to it. And Moose was the perfect guy for that. And I have to say, you guys, you really, you pulled that off. And I know, and I I feel exactly the same way that you do. There have been times I've made people mad because I've told them, I've said, I really like the finished track, don't get me wrong. But the demo, the demo was awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we have what's called demo envy. And when somebody has really captured a demo, and and there's a rawness to it or a cool factor to it or maybe, you know, I don't know, just the band did something really funky and cool. And for whatever reason, when you go in to cut it, you just don't quite catch that that magic that happened on the demo. We almost had that happen on one song of, of uh, that's on this record. I won't say which one, but me and uh, Moose and I had some laughs over over this one particular song that the demo was just so... Great. And I remember cutting the demo. I remember the exact band that cut it. And actually, Moose wasn't in on that one. And um, it was Reese Winans that was in on that one. And and um, he, you know, he, he was like, Heidi, I mean, I don't know if we can, I don't know if we can beat this. And I said, dude, we totally can. I know we can. And <laughs> w- really what ended up happening was it just, it, it beat the demo. It just had a little different flavor and a little different swing to it than the demo did but there yes there I, I hear you and i know what you mean there are times when people kind of almost overthink the recording process and i know that you know i take it very very seriously and i really loved being in the producer's chair with moose on this one and he's definitely a lot more tech savvy than i am so he's great at sitting at the board and being able to t- turn knobs and so forth whereas that's not me at all i'm 
I'm the, you know, I can read a chart and I certainly, it was kind of a really great combination because it's like, well, what about this? What if we do this? And, you know, I hear so-and-so on this and let's call so-and-so for the background singers. And we both turned each on each other on to some, some people that the other hadn't worked with before. So it was really special. And, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, to me, I think that chemistry just has to be there in order to capture that magic. And everybody has to, that's sitting in the room has to be, all it takes is kind of one bad attitude or one bad egg, one bad apple, so to speak. And you can kind of almost spoil the room. And in this case, we just, we had really, everybody was in it and, and to win it, you know, and they were all like, this is weird and cool and we love it. Let's go. You know, and that's, that's really, everybody had a great, you know, had the same sort of attitude that I did and, and Moose did. So it, it made for a fun record to make. You were talking a while back about the song, the single, The Blues Is My Business. Just <laughs> such a rocking song. And you have featured there one of my favorites, Delbert McClinton. And I oh, was yeah. familiar with the Etta James version from, from back probably going on about 20 years ago. Yes, it is. And I, I now am too. I've now listened to her version after I cut, after I cut mine. So what was it like to be sharing a, a, an experience in the recording studio with Delbert McClinton? Well, I mean, you know, in a word, a blast. It was just a blast. And I, I was honored that he loved the song and that he came in with, you know, some, it came in with, with verve and, you know, he, he, first he, what he did was, you know, I'm playing what we call the dirty harp on that. So I'm playing through like a copper mic and it gives it that, um, that kind of uh, old crunchy kind of amp sort of sound. And Delbert wanted to blow some, said, you know, do you mind if I blow some harp? I'm like, do I, hello, you're one of my, you know, harmonica <laughs> gurus. So he played through the vocal mic, which is, which was wonderful. And it was a nice little combination because he was playing, I'm playing a lot of rhythmic stuff and he's playing more one note sort of things that are kind of answers. And you can definitely de decipher between the tones of the two harmonicas and it goes really well with one another. Um, so we did that first and, and that was really cool. And then he came in and, and sat down and he looked over the, the lyric sheet and he looks at me and he says, all right, so what do we think? What do you, how do you want to do this? And I said, Delbert, I said, you know, honestly, I'm not going to produce you at all. I just said, <laughs> you know what you're doing. I don't, I don't have to produce you. And he, and he kind of was like, oh, you know, really, seriously, I, I want you to give me some direction. And I said, okay. So I, I kind of sat down on the floor kind of by his chair and so we went from top to bottom and how about if you take this whole second verse and then we'll you know let me take the third verse again and then you come back in on each of these courses and then let's do a kind of a candid thing at the end where we're just kind of doing that talking thing back and forth and just whatever comes out of our mouths comes out of our mouth which can be kind of scary because you don't want to talk over each other and so I, I was very cognizant of that and sort of, let, you know, tried to still have the energy, but we were right there in the same room and on the same microphone, 
you know, kind of chatting back and forth and it, it ended up working out just perfectly what, what he said and what I said. And, and that's how it went down. He's like, okay, he goes in and he lays his card down and he's just such a, um, you know, he's not a man of a lot of words. He doesn't come in there blabbering and, you know, he's, he's not a, a kind of a, <laughs> he, he's not, he's not a guy that's going to do a whole lot of chit chat, you know, and he's not a BSer or anything like that. He's just a guy who has been there and done that. I mean, the man has lived so through so many miles and on, on every level of the music industry. I mean, he's been through every ebb and flow that you can imagine. And here he was, you know, at this point, I think he's 79 now and probably wouldn't mind me saying this at 78 years old, you know, he's the Americana artist of the year. He's just come out with one of the best records he's ever cut. And with uh, tall, dark and handsome is the name of the record. And it's a killer record. And, you know, he, he's got this voice where, he just he walks up to the microphone. He's not a mover and shaker on stage as much. He and he, but whether he's whether he's blowing harp or whether he's singing, he's just got a timing and a tone and a and a phrasing thing that is all his own. And he kind of has like when I listen to Delbert from even from the early stuff all the way to now with the full horn sections and all that section I should say and all that it's. It's like Texas Roadhouse blues meets soul and with a little country mixed in. It's just, it's all, he's got all the feels, you know, it's just, he just all the goodness. Yeah. And it's, it's like somebody's just drizzled soul juice all over him and he just reeks of it. And he doesn't have to, he didn't, the thing I love about Delbert is it's kind of effortless. He, he makes it look so easy and, and that's really what I find with most of the greats is that they just kind of walk up and do their thing. And whether that's moving or not, you know, everybody's got their own style. But he's kind of one of the, the kings of cool, if you ask me. And <laughs> so it was it was really cool. I had met him once before on the side of the of the Ryman Auditorium stage where I had watched his set. And he stood and watched my set. And... uh we had never met, and when, we, when I walked off stage, he, he was holding his arms out, and he goes, oh, my God, who who are you? And <laughs> I said, well, I know who you are, and uh, we hugged, and that had been years prior to this. So I had not seen him and, and run into him and played any shows with Delbert for whatever reason in quite a few years in, in the meantime. So this was kind of like really kind of meeting properly for the first time, you know, and, and it was really, really cool. And I picked the, it was just the perfect, perfect, you know, edge that that song needed. And I felt like we did it justice and, and it was, we had a blast doing it. And because of that, um, you know, Delbert was kind enough to invite me to do some different things with him. He invited me on his blues cruise early, which ended up being this, this January of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And he, you know, he invited me to come on and do a couple of festival, kind of a couple of festival shows that he was coming up and doing his slot. And, you know, was that's very, very kind to offer, you know, me, even though I've, I've made my name in my own right, kind of over here in the country world, 
I'm kind of in an essence, you know, in some ways kind of re re evolving, if you will, or, or, or always evolving and, and kind of reinventing myself and, and sort of with this record and having somebody like Delbert say, you know, Hey, come up and spend some time with me on stage and come sing your tune with me and my band is a really huge honor. So it, it's, it was great. It was it's just, just a total honor. <laughs> How cool. Well, it mentions on your website, we've, we've mentioned a couple of, of singers who are great, including Delbert, the late Etta James, but it says on your website that you love, you're influenced by powerful vocalists. So who would you say your biggest singing influences are? Well, you know, I, I probably should have expanded on that because, you know, I'm as influenced by Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton and Emmy Lou and, you know, Tammy and certain Tanya Tucker was also a huge influence on me growing up because I had that natural rasp to my voice. And I also had kind of <laughs> just, just God given kind of like kind of a natural energy on stage that, that was, that was very similar to Tanya. And so, but those women and more, I mean, certainly you can go back to Patsy and, you know, and, and Mother Mabel Carter. And as far as the women, I'm, I'm, I'm staying on the women. There are tons of male influences as well. But then there were women that really influenced me that were not necessarily, you know, they were powerhouses in, in a different way, like the Etta Jameses of the world. Big Mama Thornton going back in the, in the, to the blues, I mean, was really a milestone kind of artist in the fact that she would stand up there and belt it out, belt out the rock, basically rock and roll and blues and play an electric guitar when you just didn't see women doing that back then. And she was dressed in her pencil skirt and her, you know, dressed to the nines. But I just, I was, you know, I loved women like that. Bonnie Raitt was a big influence on me. Tina Turner. Uh, I just always thought, wow, there's a woman that has just, you know, my gosh, uh, women that, that the moment they open their mouth, you right away, you know who it is. You just, they're stylists. And I feel the same way about bands and, and male artists. And it doesn't, it's, I feel no different about any, it's, it's not a, I really don't pick and choose my, influences by gender but those are the women that, that definitely and i'm prop i'm totally missing some i'm certain but mama cass and you know there's a lot of of women who have helped mold me and then there's some really you know phenomenal women as of more recent that i'm you know i'm just i i love their writing and i love their just their tone or their ability to walk out and own a crowd and that could be anybody from Adele to, gosh, I mean, I'm I'm all, I'm so all over the map. I, you know, Diana Krall to, yeah, I listen to a lot of different music, so it's really hard to just name one. But I I like women that are stylists. Hmm. And that you know what? At the end of the day, when I say stylists, I don't just mean they're that you know who they are automatically when you hear them, but the music that they sing and and the way that they go about. Uh, rendering a song is completely 100% authentic to them. You know, the music that Loretta Lynn sat down and wrote and sang every night 
you know, all of her life. And the same goes for pretty much everybody else I mentioned. These are women who were singing songs that they'd lived. They'd lived or, or felt or, or been through. They've lived it. And so each of them are so different in, in their own way and their own right, but they're all very, very authentic. And I think that's, that's so important to me to not try to be anybody else but myself. And that's why I think you have to kind of be brave when you're making records and, and not necessarily follow a pattern per se, do what comes natural to you. Hmm. Well, speaking of difficult questions, this one might be, this might be hard to answer. <laughs> <laughs> From all the tracks that you have on the Barfly Sessions Volume 1, could you pick the song that you think best represents the album? No. <laughs> Fair enough. How's that for an answer? <laughs> I, it's, it's too varied. I I would have to probably like four songs because they kind of represent a certain direction that that, that record goes into. But I don't think I could pick one that represents it because it, I'd be I'd be doing the record a disservice by missing a, a something else that that represents it just equally, equally as well. So, you know, the blues is my business. I'm absolutely crazy about three things and the vibe that that brings. I really, really love either wrong side of the bottle or I could fall for you to represent what that's, what that record stands for as far as the honky tonk Baker. I call it like when we describe it on my live streams, which I do almost every Sunday night. I might miss a Sunday here or there when I'm traveling or whatever, but I do a, a live stream on Facebook every Sunday night from my home studio called The Hideaway, amply named, during a pandemic. And uh, <laughs> and we, you know, it, it's really fun playing these things, acoustics for everyone, and, and it's kind of, you know, kept my chops up and, it's been a really intimate way to kind of, you know, I've, I thought it wouldn't be, but I've learned, I've gotten more comfortable with the whole in-studio live stream camera thing and getting, you know, pretending that that's, these are all bodies. These are, this is your audience. And we've kind of become a little family, you know, and, and, um, and then you get these, you know, newbies that come join and it's wonderful. So I, I've, I've learned that and how we describe the record is from Bakersfield to the blues because it's that varied, you know, so that's where the, I could fall for you. And then, I don't know. I, I think when heaven falls is a song that really hits me between the eyes and is kind of a, a representative of the record. As far as a singer songwriter goes, I didn't sing. It's literally my tracking vocal that you hear. It's not fancy. It's not, it's not, I wanted to re-sing it and we kind of moose and I kind of talked about it. And my fiance, Matt King, who's also a great, great artist and, and a wonderful producer and, and helped me a lot. He also co-wrote a couple things with me on this record, temporary fix and Barfly, the actual track, the title track he co-wrote with me. But, you know, we, we all talked about it and, and it was like, don't touch that vocal because there was sort of an, a, a longing and an aching, and a timing to that vocal that we just kind of wanted to leave alone. So all I did was just go back in and lay my own harmony, like a harmony part over the top of that. That song is, is really, you know, it's a, it's a song about, I had 
written that with Chris Stapleton and Trent Wellman back in, I think, 2010. So it's 10 years old and almost exactly. And I had kind of forgotten about it. And, and, and then I I'm, was searching and, and I was like, oh, man, I especially right now during a time in this world when we're going through all of this stuff, it's a very weighty, you know, daunting time with a pandemic and an election and all the unrest and the fires and the floods. And God knows there's some biblical stuff going on here. And it's, it's pretty uh, intense. And when heaven falls, really, you know, it's completely uh, every kind of version of of the feeling of loss and you know, what it feels like, what it sounds like, what it's, what it looks like, uh, what it hurts like. And it originally spurred off what the idea was spurred off of the loss of my mom. And I had been kind of carrying around some grief that I didn't realize I was carrying around from her loss in 2004. And I hadn't, I'd been working so hard. I and on the road. I just, I really hadn't properly grieved her. And I, that day, we had already written another song that was really good, actually. And and uh, but the day was still young, and so I threw that idea out. And Chris just started playing kind of the the bones of that melody that I had and and uh, that I was singing to him. And he laid his head back. I'll never forget and and said the first lines. You know, it's, it's the burning of an angel dam that lingers in the souls of man. It's the anger and the alcohol. That's how it feels when heaven falls. And I just went, okay, all right, hmm. that's right, and we're off. And we just, <laughs> you know, hopped in, and and it became something very special. And I've gotten a lot of really wonderful feedback from that song, and and the rawness of it. It, it you know, it's got an, an aching, you know, feel to it. So I think that is important and, and hard not to kind of pinpoint. You were mentioning a moment ago about these live virtual things that you've been doing. Mm -hmm. Is it hard to connect with people, your fans, in that way? You know, it was at first, Paul. You know, the first couple of times that I did it, I wasn't quite as comfortable. I I didn't feel like the stage has always been home for me. I am just. A, it's a very, very natural place and comfortable place for me to be, even when, you know, and inevitably when you play out, as you know, and you're on the road as much as, as I'm used to being, even when you don't, you know, you don't have the perfect show or maybe something technical goes down or it could be, it could be anything. You don't feel well or something even the worst show is still a really great day for me because I get to do what I love to do. And I'm, I feel really you know, blessed to be able to do that. So changing the transition to going from that, that, that natural exchange of energy that happens between an audience, a live audience and, and you up on stage and your band or whatever configuration you're doing, it's, palpable you can feel it it's it's it is i get as much from them as as hopefully they get from me and and there's this natural bouncing back of you know it's like dodgeball basically you're throwing this energy at each other and it's wonderful it's really really what it's all about now to move that to a 
you know, into an, uh, uh, we've basically, com- you know, changed our, our home studio into a live streaming studio. So now, you know, we really, it was a big learning curve, but we, and I'm so grateful that Matt is naturally more tech savvy than I am. And so he just dove into all these tutorials and all these different things, learning how, like learning a lot about lighting and I had a, I was into photography, so I had bought a really nice camera and we went and bought a few other lenses for it. And, and we kind of just started playing around in the studio and kind of want, you know, stream by stream, we became more, I became more comfortable with that audience being behind the lens. And it is kind of fun when you are, you know, you're playing and, you know, it's kind of the wrinkles and all like, you know, you're going to mess up or have a moment when you're playing acoustic. It's, it's live, you know, so you're, I've found that people have more fun when you just don't let it be more like a set list and, and uh, let it be more like, you know, like you're sitting around a campfire. And so there's conversation in between. I like to acknowledge everybody. I'll, I'll scroll down and read who's all on there I'll answer their questions. I'll throw in, the, you know, play some of their requests and, and then, you know, jump back on and play something else and then do a giveaway. You know, if you, and you, I'll answer, it could be anything from movie trivia to something to do with the butterfly sessions. So, you know, that's always great to kind of keep people hooked on this record and, and paying attention. And so, you know, it's, 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 I can say that it's become it's become more comfortable as time has gone on, but it is very different, and it has made I think all of us. I don't think there's an artist out there that could say that they don't miss playing live. <laughs> I miss it very very much, and so this year has really galvanized that in to all of us as artists and 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 live performing artists how much we miss the stage and miss that, you know, that natural, that experience that happens that you can only get from being there and uh, at that place at that time with those lights and, you know, wearing that outfit with that, with, you know, with that band. So it's really special, but this is, is really cool too. And I'm, and you know, at first too, I was really kind of freaked out about it. And then as I've gotten more comfortable with it, I just let it be kind of fun. And I have found that the more fun I the more like I let my hair down and kind of joke around and, you know, kind of just, like I said, I mean, I'm not politically correct. I, I don't talk politics. That's the one thing you can guarantee <laughs> I don't do, but I do empathize and commiserate with the crowd because I know that they're go- we're all going through something. We're all going through something. We're going through it differently. I may be going through it, you know, where our business has, all but stopped in in most cases. I mean, there's some a few live shows going on, but very very few. And the big tours have stopped. And and you know, you're seeing these venues and small all of our great smaller stages. A lot of them one by one closing, and it's it's heartbreaking. So I find that that the more comfortable I've gotten, the more like loose and easy, and the more fun I have, and the more I joke with the crowd, and the more. You know, we we do a toast, we kind of hang out, sometimes it's wine, sometimes it's water, sometimes it's whiskey, so it just depends on the night and uh, what's going on, and and we talk about the world, and and we talk about, you know, you know, when as I read down, how are you in, you know, 
Salem, Oregon, or how are you in, so, you know, um, in Austin, Texas, or whoever, wherever I'm, and also a lot of, a lot of people from overseas, you know, a lot of people in the UK and Australia and different people who are, they're literally watching in the future. <laughs> and it's cool to talk to them and get a chance to, it's a, it, I found that I think that it's a way for me, for a contribution, if you will. Um, it's a way for me to feel like I'm contributing something in a time when you feel really helpless. That's a perfect way to put it. I feel like it's it's a way to, to bring some kind of comfort in music and a conversation and for people to kind of forget their woes and their worries for an hour or so or an hour and a half or whatever. I always say, okay, tonight I'm going to do a short show. I'm going to be here for 45 minutes from this and I'll still end up being there for an hour and a half because it's just <laughs> we're having fun. So that says a lot. Yeah, it's it's become a lot more comfortable and and also made me really really appreciate playing, getting on that bus and going and playing live. You know, anybody out there, if they want to get in on these shows, and if you want to find out more about the album, you can go to heidinewfield.com. And while you're on HeidiNewfield.com, there is something that you can read that I really, really enjoyed. It's a, an interview that you did with Twangville.com. Oh. <laughs> and the title of you're it... You're good. Oh, thank you. God bless you. The title of it is Heidi Newfield on Twizzlers and Never Having a Plan B. Really interesting. And, <laughs> and the questions revealed things... One of the things that it really caught my eye was when you said that you, when you, when you came to Nashville, you were waiting tables. You were at a place called the Boundary, and mm-hmm. I immediately felt like we were in a club together because I did seven and a half years in the service industry, and, and we're all in a fraternity or a sorority together, however you want to look at it. And my question is this: You mentioned you said I made good money back then. <laughs> Which I did too. I did. I did. Yeah, I made better money doing that than when I first joined Trick Pony. <laughs> Isn't that something? Isn't that great? Well, you know, you know how it is. It's like like we were a van and trailer band at that point. So you you hit the road, and you know we worked really hard, and we you know we did our own driving and all of that. Like every you know, we paid our dues, and we had paid our dues even long before that individually. So. Yeah, I, I I was used to having you know good weeks where I was counting the Hunskies, and uh, <laughs> and then you jump into playing with the band and your trio, and you, you know your overhead, your fuel, and all that good stuff. So yeah, the first couple of years, I think I made better money waiting tables. Interesting. How would you describe Heidi Newfield at that time when you got to Nashville? You were working waiting tables how who who was this girl Heidi Newfield oh you know that's a really good question I've not been asked that question before let me think for a second I who was Heidi Newfield I you know ironically I would tell you not much different than the woman you're talking to right now (laughs) just you know the old I wish I knew what I then what I know now kind of thing oh yeah I guess I'm I guess I'm glad that I didn't because I I you know some of the mistakes and some of the wrong moves that I've that we all make when we're we're starting out on a venture you have to make those mistakes those those mistakes are what help you from 
either making the same mistake again or they help you mold you as you as you move forward and I'm I'm probably just as grateful for the mistakes as I am for the triumphs but who's the Heidi back then I was I can tell you this I was a lot I was more not as comfortable with being a boss I was more comfortable with being a friend so I've learned over the years that you can how to balance that and that there is a very natural and comfortable way to handle yourself where you don't demand anybody's respect. That's not the way to do it. You don't, you don't push that on anybody. You have to kind of earn it over time, but you set an example and you go by that and you, you also set healthy boundaries for yourself. I didn't, know how to do that back then. I was just kind of like this bouncing, energetic, full of, oh, I've always been, you know, kind of sun, look on the sunshiny kind of life kind of girl. And I still am that. I'm definitely more of an optimist. But I, I so, you know, when it came to dealing with the band and, and there, you know, if there was somebody that needed to be let go or, or something like that. And, you know, before before even in the early trick bunny days when we had management and we had you know people representing us and so forth that could do that job for us there were there were things that i think a way that i could have handled myself that you know i was always concerned about making everybody happy and that included you know everybody on on our team it included at every show i would you know i would spend almost too much time talking to everybody else, well, what that would ultimately do. And, and that's, it's really a kind of a catch 22 because I would wear myself down, you know, and I didn't know how to balance that. Like I do now where I would, I still visit with everybody after the show. And as long as, as the logistics allow for me to sign at, at the merch, I love meeting everybody. I love or meeting as many people as possible and, and signing stuff and, and, getting that one-on-one is there's just it's these are people that have spent money to come see you that's in this day and age there's a gazillion artists out there that they could choose from and they've picked you to come see and to come buy a t-shirt from or whatever so the least you can do is try to spend a little time with them take a picture take a selfie whatever back in the early days I didn't know how to do that without almost like giving everything away so that I would be, by the end of the week, I'd be completely hoarse. I'd be frazzled. You know, I'd be tired. I'd be, you know, I'd be worn, worn down. And I've learned how to kind of balance that now to where I can still visit with everybody. I can still do the exact same thing, but I know now how to, I know how to be a boss, but still totally get along with and have a, a deep and, and friendly and friend, a deep friendship, frankly, with, with my band and crew and everybody that works with me, um, my manager and everybody. I have friendships, but I also, there's a, a respect there that goes both ways. And I think that that is really, really important in a business relationship. And you have to establish that at, at some point and it kind of goes over time and I think that might be one of the biggest things that's changed or grown. I shouldn't say changed, but just more more of like 
a natural sort of um, growth, you know, for me. It's just learning, learning my, my, <laughs> learning how to maneuver without giving so much of myself away that I don't have anything left for myself or for the next night for the others that I'm about to see. And then also, just like I said, how to, how to, how to balance the people I work with and the people, you know, for everybody from the label to you name it, just, I don't know. I've settled down a little bit. Like I've, I don't feel like I have to bounce off the walls in order to, to be noticed. <laughs> uh. That's how I would put that. <laughs> well, Heidi, thank you so much for spending time with us. I want everyone out there to go to HeidiNewfield.com. And I, I always like to end the show. I just, I give the guest the stage. It's not limited to music. And there are people who are listening in who are big fans of you, but also people who they're just getting exposed to your music. What would you say to anyone who's, who's tuned in with us? Wow. Well, you know, I think right now, I think that the biggest message I want to get across to everybody out there is that right now, it's really about being kind to one another. That that knows no color, that knows no political side. We need to be a kinder, more patient world, much less nation. And I think that, that the one sort of thing that really helps people, I know it does me anyways, kind of, you know, communicate that kindness is music. And so, you know, I, I would say just, you know, tune into your favorite music and, 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 you know, immerse yourself in, in love with your family and your friend, your closest friends and for everybody to be careful out there. And that uh, to love one another, that's really what we, I think that's about the biggest message I could, I could spread is, and always want to spread is, you know, be kind, be, be forgiving, love one another. And, you know, don't judge, let, leave that to God. Well put. Well, Heidi, (laughs) thank you. My pleasure. What an honor to interview you. Thank you. You too, Paul. Thank you so much. You're a joy. And anytime you need anything, you just, you just, you know me and Brian. So you just reach on out. All right. That's a deal. (laughs) Okay. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. You take care. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Until next time. Until next time. Bye-bye. Take care. Goodbye.